going old school, paper. I have to print my message all of a sudden at the, at the break there. So, hey, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bibles. Did you guys enjoy our weekend last weekend with the Walters? Wasn't that great? Good time. Good time on Saturday and just I appreciated uh, Ryan sharing with us and I just thought he knocked it out of the park once uh, he began to tell us his testimony. It was awesome to hear that story. And so uh, we're going to, we've been away from the gospel of Matthew, but we're going to jump back in here this morning at uh, chapter 19. And, uh, and so let's actually read. It says this, now when Jesus had finished saying these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" And he answered, "Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Matthew chapter 19, we're going to um, actually just hunkered down right in that section of scripture this morning, not go um, any further than those, what is it, nine verses, 12 verses. Um, it says again in verse one there that now when Jesus had finished these saints, he went from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. When we wrapped up a couple weeks ago in uh, Matthew chapter 18, we were discussing lessons on what is greatness in the kingdom Jesus took the little child and he pointed uh, his disciples to the humility of childlike character and said, this is greatness in the kingdom. We talked about uh, forgiveness at the end of Matthew 18. Jesus was giving lessons on forgiveness. And um, it's interesting here that he packs up and they leave the region of Galilee. And this is actually the last time Jesus leaves Galilee on his way to the cross. He doesn't go back to this region until um, he has been raised uh, from the dead. And from Galilee, get this, they travel the east bank of the Jordan uh, River, which is interesting because the scripture says that that was part of Judea. We don't ever talk about that, that the east bank belongs to Israel, not just the west bank. And it's easy to breeze over um, verse 2 as you read that, that it's a, it's a a quick note in a larger story with almost no details that it says that even though the ministry of Jesus at this point was focused on his disciples, there were crowds following them. There were crowds coming along and whenever Jesus, whenever people brought their sick and needy, needy family and friends to Jesus, he healed, he healed them and they crowded around him and he had compassion on them. He had a a tender heart, which is interesting because he's going to talk about the heart. He had a tender heart uh, towards the crowd and he, and he responded to them with the power of God and he, and he healed their infirmities. And in verse three, we read this, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful? You know what I just went to do? I went to go like this. <laughs> Don't need to do that with paper. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Sorry. Um, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
So Jesus is here. He is. I mean, get this picture. They're, they're traveling. His disciples are with them. There's crowds. He's healing everyone. It's like awesome. And the Pharisees come along. And what are they interested in? Arguing. They want to fight. They want to put Jesus to the test. No surprise. See, that's always the mentality of a Pharisee. A Pharisee wants to debate rather than celebrate what God is doing and what the spirit of God is doing. And so there they are. They want to they pick a fight with Jesus. People are getting healed and they want to debate. They want to argue. They want to test things. And so they ask this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Good question. You know, um, with discussion, it, well, in that, in that time, in those days, there was lots of discussion amongst uh, the Israelites in regards to the issue of divorce and remarriage. And it was a hot button topic 2,000 years ago. And amongst, amongst the Jews, uh, there was really two rival points of view, two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Hillel, who you hear lots about in history, who had set the, they had come about a generation before Jesus, set the tone for the Pharisees and where they would land in different camps on the issue of marriage and divorce. And one school of thought uh, essentially maintained that a man could pretty much divorce his wife for any reason, you know, uh, whatever it is. He no longer loved her. They, you know, he'd found somebody that he liked better. She had burnt his dinner. She had offended his parents by something she had said, or she hadn't provided children, whatever it is. I mean, he could essentially just end the marriage and move on. So that was the one school of thought. And the other school of thought was much stricter. And it, it essentially left um, no grounds for divorce, no grounds for remarriage. And so you had these two, this real liberal thinking. It's like, yeah, whatever. And this extreme conservative thinking that left no room the other way. And so on, in those days, the discussion was heated. It was heated. Like it is often in the church today. We say, where, where, where do we land on these sorts of things? And so, you know, as we read this, one of the things that we got to remember is that this question was posed to Jesus to test him. It was a test. And it was meant to trap him. And so we read on in verse 4. It says this. Jesus answered. He answered. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Someone should tell our culture that. And he said, there a man, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so in answer to the question, Jesus says this, let's go back. Let's go way back. Let's go right back to the very beginning into the garden of Eden and rediscover the heart of God, the design of God for marriage, for the relationship between a man and his wife. Let's go back to the beginning. And the creation account, the, the book of Genesis provides for us uh, the foundation of marriage. And Jesus said this, he said, haven't you read Evan, you picked it up. That's one of the problems why, where we lose definition sometimes because we don't know the word of God. And so he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You know, in the whole creation account, as we read about all the different things that God created and the animals and nature and the seas and the stars and the sun and the moon and man, God says constantly throughout the creation account, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, until man is there alone in creation and God says, it's not good. It's not good that man uh, be alone. There was no suitable partner for Adam. And so woman, Eve, was created to meet this need, to give him a suitable partner. A man needed, Adam needed a companion. He needed someone who was equal to him, with whom he could find fulfillment. And God's answer for man was woman. God's answer for Adam was Eve. And Jesus said, it's been this way since the beginning. That's what he essentially says to the Pharisees. God's foundational design for marriage actually leads to this application that Jesus says. He says this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife 
and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are asking about legal grounds for divorce. And, and Jesus essentially says that the problem with your question is this, is that you fail to understand God's design. You fail to understand the sanctity of marriage. You fail to understand that marriage is not simply about a man and a woman coming together. Marriage is about a man and woman coming together by the design and blessing of Almighty God. And because before God, the two have become one, that means this. What Jesus is saying is that marriage is holy. That means that when we hear someone say, talk about sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, it means this, that before God, marriage is sacred, that it's a holy institution. We can't say those words lightly, that it's blessed, that it's holy, that it's God-ordained, that it's God's design, that is his institution, that marriage belongs to him. He established it. And I say institution because marriage is the, it's a foundation for culture, for society, for family, for nations. Marriage is the foundation for which we understand. Jesus tells us this. The New Testament tells us this. Sorry, Paul, Paul was the one who declared it. Marriage is the foundation for which we gain an understanding of our relationship as the church with Christ Jesus. And so marriage is God's design. It's God's pattern his design for bringing children into the world. Marriage is the structure upon which nations are built, not government. Wrong mistake. Marriage is the foundation. And so if you don't, you know, have marriage, what happens in a culture? Families fall apart. Nations fall apart. Children struggle in establishing their and forming their identity. Churches fall apart without marriage. Marriage is God's design from the beginning. Amen? And the problem with the question of the Pharisees was really the low view they held of God's design for marriage between a man and his wife. You know, one of the greatest relational bonds that we have as, as men and women is um, in parental and, and in parental relationships, like your relationship to your parents and your relationship uh, to your children. Parents in the room, you, you understand that bond, especially, I think, if you're a parent. Uh, the love that comes with that relationship of, of having a child. Like, like my heart pines for my children. And I don't know that I totally understood that my parents' heart pined for me until I had children. And then you get, you get lonely for them. You long to have a relationship with them and to connect with them. And so you think about, you know, your connection with your parents, even if it's healthy or not healthy, what those relationships mean. There's, there's a bond to them because they gave you life. Your DNA, their blood, you know, the whole deal. And, and this, is, this is Jesus' point and what the word of God says, that a, that a man shall leave his father and mother and he'll hold fast to his wife. We say you... You leave your family of origin and you cleave to your wife. And what that means is that marriage, the, the marriage relationship between husband and wife, because of God's sacred design, because of the holiness and glory of God, the, the marriage relationship between a husband and wife is to supersede the relationship between a parent and his child or a child and his parent. I mean, let me ask you this question. A question that I think helps us feel the weight. Okay, I want to put some weight on us for a minute. The weight of glory. Here's the question. For parents in the room, would you divorce your child? Oh, doesn't that feel heavy? May the Spirit of God reveal to us the weight of marriage. Would you divorce your child? Of course not. I mean, would you, would you ever consider legally dissolving your relationship with your child? I mean, consider the emotions that you have, right? And the questions that come to your heart and mind if you even just consider that. And the point that Jesus is saying is that, that God's design for marriage places marriage on even a higher plane than a parent with its child. 
It's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, when you really stop and, and, and consider it. And, and that's where, it's, where we find ourselves in these struggles in regards to divorce and, and remarriage. And, you know, people say things, yeah, but we don't love each other anymore. Yeah, but we just, we're not compatible and to that, we have to see what Jesus says here. He, he, he lifted the subject of marriage to its purest and its highest altitude in God's design. He took it to the mountaintop. See, the sanctity of, of marriage is the summit of human relationships. A man and his wife, the two shall become one. And, you know, I, I, I think this, that's why the world outside the church doesn't understand pushback from the faith community, from believers, uh, from the church, from Christians, when they suggest, let's redefine marriage. Let's, let's move the goalposts, so to speak. And it's because the heathen, word, the heathen world does not use the word of God as their, as their foundation for life and relationships. And so it has no comprehension really of, of marriage as the peak of relationship, God's design, holy, sacred, the glory of God to be in that relationship. Relationship between a man and a woman. And so marriage is, in its design, is, is holy. Like, think about it. It's holy as God is holy. And a godly marriage reveals to this world the glory of God. You know, I was... I was really blown away by Ryan's testimony last week. I don't know about you, but he, he began to just tell us how these things were stirred in his heart. The plane was coming down and he heard guys crying out, you know, in the back calling on the name of Jesus. They all thought they were going to die. People that had only ever used the name of Jesus as a swear word. And he came to this awareness, like what happens when I die? What, what about eternity? And he told us that when he first began to ask questions about faith, that he went to one man, one man in his life that stood out above the rest. Do you remember what he said about that man? Remember? He said this, he stood out to me because he loved his wife. I thought, what? Wow. That's so awesome, man. You know, think about the culture in which Ryan was living. He said, that man loved his wife. I, I observed his faith and I observed the life of a man who loved his wife. And, you know, I think that that doesn't mean Jean Pronovos was his name. I, that doesn't mean Jean was perfect. Doesn't mean his marriage was perfect. Doesn't mean his wife was perfect. I'm sure behind closed doors, <laughs> like your house and my house. They had relationship struggles like all marriages do. But what it means is that Ryan saw a man who was different. He saw a man who held a different, a higher value on his marriage relationship, who held a, a higher value on his wife, and he lived accordingly because he believed something about his marriage before God. And so the original question to Jesus was asked to trap him, but Jesus exposed the problem in the question, the sin problem, the sin problem in the heart of mankind that was behind the, the question of the Pharisees. See, sin wants us to lower the value of marriage. Sin wants us to redefine the definition of what God has designed but the son of God who came to save the world from sin points us back to God's original designs. No, let's go back to the beginning. God's design for marriage, God's ideal. It's not good for a man to be alone. And the glory of God is revealed to the world through this holy institution that God has established. Marriage. Sin lowers the value of marriage. And Jesus Christ lifts up marriage. Jesus holds up the ideal of God's design. You know, I think, I mean, we could really hunker down here and spend a lot of time on this discussion um, because we live in a culture that's so confused on this issue, don't we? Obviously, you know, it, it, it influences the church. It influences the community uh, of faith. You know, it influences our youth and 
our kids and their view on marriage. I'm not, I'm not slamming anyone. You know, it's like the truth is in my kids' classes in school, most of the kids come from homes that are broken, marriages that are broken. You know, I think about this topic. I mean, we're not even talking about sex yet. Haven't even touched that subject. And we think about the mandate of God for the marital relationship. It was this, be fruitful, multiply. God's design was that, that uh, intimacy and sexual relationship be experienced and practiced within the context of a committed marriage relationship before God. And when sex, like it's happening in our culture more and more and more, it seems, comes outside the context of a committed marriage, it becomes a destructive force. In many ways. And marriage is the place of protection from sexual sin. God's appointed way for a man and a woman to enjoy one another in the context of his design where he blesses it. And so, you know, when we consider God's definition of marriage between a man and a woman, a physical union between two, which is more than a physical union, it's a spiritual union in that sense because it's God's design and God's blessing upon it. The two become one. God's plan. When a man marries a woman and they establish a, they establish a bond that is, is so deep, the scripture says, in its nature that she is as much a part of his body as he is of her. The two are one. And therefore... It's meant to be permanent, Jesus says. That's one of the reasons so many in our culture, I think, are afraid of marriage. You know, they practice living together. We're going to try this out, see if we can make it work. And I think this, I think that culture of shacking up is, is a culture that is based on fear. People are chicken out there. Culture of chickens, they, they fear God's design. They fear the permanent nature of marriage and in their hearts they understand. They understand that marriage implies permanency and they prefer an escape clause. And I think that we need to recognize from the words of Jesus and what we need to hear what he's saying as he answers the Pharisees is, is the value Jesus places on the institution of marriage. Like I said, sin wants to lower the value of marriage, but Christ Jesus lifts it up. Jesus holds up the ideal of God's design. And so the Pharisees, as he's saying these things, begin to get confronted. They say to him this, verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, I, I think this about Pharisees. The Pharisees aren't interested in the truth, first of all. You got to know that about these guys. They're not. This was about winning an argument. This is about trying to trap Jesus. And so they're on the ropes. Going to come out with one last final swing and try and knock him out. And so they ask the question along this line. If, if marriage is meant to be permanent, then why does the Old Testament offer, why did Moses offer the option of divorce at all? They actually said this. Why did Moses command? And you got to notice that word in there. He commanded. He commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, the first thing is this, is that Moses did not command divorce, was Jesus going to say. He permitted it. And the only thing he commanded in regards to divorce was that a husband give his ex-wife a, a legal certificate of divorce. Moses says, it's got to be above board. That's the deal. It had to be done legally in a way that would really, in their culture, protect the wife. That's what this was about, protecting the woman, where, where she wouldn't be left vulnerable without a husband, where she would have the ability to remarry. Uh, Moses' instruction was a provision for the protection of women, actually. Not a command to get divorced. It was a command that if a divorce happens, then it's got to be legalized with a certificate. It's permanent, just like you enter in with a heart of permanency, if you leave, it's permanent. And it's legalized. So think, you know, really the idea is this. Think long and hard about what you're doing before you kibosh that whole thing. And so Jesus 
answers this question. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And in verse 8, he says this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus uh, corrects their thinking with the answer. Moses didn't command divorce. He allowed it. He permitted it. And Moses allowing or permitting divorce was made necessary, Jesus says, because human hearts are hard. It's interesting. He says, your hearts, your hearts are hard. See, sin had corrupted marriage just like sin corrupts marriage, just like sin corrupts everything else, right? Just makes a mess of my life and a mess of your life. So glad Jesus came to set us free from sin. And divorce in the scripture was an accommodation for the hardness of human hearts. Divorce was in a sense a, a, a lesser evil, you almost think, you know, instead of, you know, abusing your wife or extra marital stuff going on or whatever, it's like, here's a clause. And here's the thing about Moses, though, and I think this is important. I want you to hear this this morning. Listen to this. To me, this is one of the important things about this text. Moses, and in the instructions that he gave, was limited in a certain sense. And here's where Moses was limited. See, Moses could not hope to do anything that would change the, human of a, the, the hardness of a human heart. It's like the law. The law, when we know this, the Old Testament law, it, does, it has no power. All it does is expose sin. And really, Moses had nothing to offer anyone but a way out. Let's just make it legal. And that's where Moses and Jesus are different. See, Moses can't change hearts. But Jesus changes hearts. That's where the two of them are different. That's how Jesus is different. Jesus can touch the human heart. And it's interesting that Matthew places this lesson on, on marriage after the last chapter where we were two weeks ago, the end of Matthew chapter 18, where he talked about forgiveness. He talked about giving and granting forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And if there's one relationship where you got to put the practice of the habit of asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness into practice in your life, it's marriage, isn't it? Ryan and Jen, uh, last week on Saturday, on the, uh, uh, during the, um, the marriage enrichment thing that we were doing, they shared some super interesting statistics with us, and one of them in particular blew me away, actually. I was like, wow. And it came from, I, I forget the guy's name now. Ron and I were discussing it this week. I've slipped my mind. But he's from Seattle, and he's been studying marriages for 50 years. And... Um, Ryan, as he was sharing this statistic, was talking about the resolving of conflict in marriage. And he told us that research says that, that couples that are struggling in marriage, so you think about couples that things are not going good. You know, there's strife, there's trouble, there's all the, all the stuff that's not good. Ryan told us that couples that are struggling in marriage, uh, statistically, they leave 69% of issues unresolved. It's almost... Almost 70%. I didn't round it off for a purpose. He says 69% of their issues are unresolved as they uh, battle it out. But then he told us about couples that are happy in marriage, couples that are vitalized in marriage, uh, couples that, that their marriage for them is a place that breathes life into them, that gives them energy, that leaves them excited for life and doesn't, you know, it strengthens them rather than robs them. And for vitalized couples, the interesting thing was that there was a percentage in their resolution of conflict, like how they resolve issues. And the crazy thing was that unresolved issues in happy couples was exactly the same as unresolved issues in unhappy couples, 69%. I thought that was fascinating. I was like, I thought he was going to, you know, just drop the percentage way down, but it's exactly the same. And Ryan said something like this. He said, people don't change. Your spouse does not change. You have to make a decision to grow together. 
Look at the 70% of unresolved issues in your marriage are probably not going to resolve. <laughs> There's always going to be money trouble. You know, he's not going to pick up his clothes. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is in your house, even issues of sin. And the key to health is almost what we uh, see Jesus saying. It is what we see Jesus teaching in Matthew 18, the asking and granting of forgiveness, the heart. And when we choose not to forgive, when we choose not to practice that in the relationship that is most important in our entire lives, more important than any other relationship outside of our relationship with God, when we choose not to be forgiving, the simplicity and the tenderness that is necessary in a marriage, the simplicity and tenderness that is necessary for us to realize the high ideal of God for marriage is lost. And simplicity and tenderness transforms into something, Jesus says. It hardens. It turns into the hardness of heart. And it was because of the hardness of human hearts that Moses allowed divorce in the first place. But Jesus says, but from the beginning, it wasn't so. And so here's the thing, you know, uh, the permission that Moses gave to the people with hardened hearts I would say is this, not to be the standard of the kingdom of God. I mean, we're all navigating this marriage thing as church, as culture and all that thing, but the standard of Moses is not the standard of the kingdom of God. And I can say that because hard-heartedness and the kingdom of God are two things that are incompatible. Hard-heartedness and the kingdom of God are two things that are incompatible. Think about it. What does Jesus have to do with hard hearts? Man, Jesus is in the business of heart transplants. Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. Jesus is in the business of softening hearts. That's his work. And, you know, most married people, when they think about Jesus changing human hearts, they think, yeah, that's right. My wife needs that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My husband needs his heart changed. It's my spouse. And that's where I would tell you your responsibility is your own heart. In your marriage relationship, your responsibility is not your spouse's heart, but your own heart. Are you tender? Are you tender? I mean, stop thinking about your spouse and ask Jesus to soften your heart. There's a warning in the scripture that Moses actually spoke to the people. He said this. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness. You know, marriage is tough. It's not easy. Think about my poor wife having to live with me. You know, I'm the one who got it easy. No, I don't know. I'm thankful for my wife, really thankful for my wife. She's not here this morning, but, you know, we generally have a good marriage. But you know what this text reminded me? That marriage doesn't work if you set it on cruise control. That's dangerous. And as a husband, I have to continue to deal with my heart all the time. Jesus changing my heart. My wife needs to deal with her heart all the time. Jesus changing her heart. And husbands, I would say to you this morning, you, you have to work at keeping a tender heart towards your wife. I see the eyes. I just saw some couples doing this. It's good. You know, uh, Jesus, or Paul commanded this. He said, love your wife. Keep, keep your heart tender to your wife, husbands. Wives, Paul commanded them in the book of Ephesians, respect your husband. There's, there's a tenderness of heart that is needed to give that man the respect that you should be giving him. And some things may not resolve. That's just the truth. Statistically, that's the truth. Some things are not going to resolve. But in the midst of that, you can make a decision to grow, to love your wife with a tender heart, to respect your husband with a tender heart, 
to ask and grant forgiveness as we see in Matthew chapter 18, to ask Jesus to transform our hearts where Moses cannot, where the law cannot. There's hope because there's hope for our marriages because God can give us new hearts. And so Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You know, one of the things about the Bible, the Bible is so awesome because they say this, for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament illustration, an Old Testament example for us. And you think about divorce, it is, is, it the, is divorce the unpardonable sin? Well, not what I read in my Bible. Um, the most famous story, of course, of marital failure is who? Who is it? Come on, David, yeah. David's the most famous story in history for a man who blew it in regards to marriage. Remember him? The man after the heart of God. How do you have to like to live up to that title, right? The man after the heart of God. And what is David known for? He's known for that heart of God, but he's known for being an adulterer and a murderer. And that speaks of the, you know, the man of, after the heart of God that speaks of a heart that towards God, forget your wife for a second, Towards God, he was a man who had a tender heart, a soft heart. And in a time of idle weakness, the scripture tells us that David let his guard down. He got involved in an illicit relationship with a married woman. He pursued her while her husband was away out of town, battling for his army. He pursued a married woman and and, uh, we, we know that She got pregnant. And so if things went from bad to worse uh, for David, that's an understatement. He discovered that she was pregnant by him. And so what did he have to do? He he had to murder. He, He planned and saw that it happened. The murder of her husband, Uriah, killed him. And when God stepped into the situation, when Bathsheba and David were now living under the same roof and she's pregnant and I don't know where in that story, you know what's interesting in the Bible that it doesn't tell us where in the story they got married. Maybe they were living outside of the context of marriage, not just having an illicit sexual relationship but pretending that they were married. And when God stepped into David's situation and he sent the prophet Nathan to speak to him, David was told the child that was conceived in this situation is going to die. And so the whole thing went down. The the child died and David was um, impacted powerfully by it. He he came to a place of repentance before the Lord. And one of the beauties about that story, the beauty about David's story is this, is that once God had dealt with David's sin and David had been honest with his heart before the Lord, The next child that came from that relationship, that marriage with Bathsheba, was Solomon. And Solomon became the heir to David's throne. He became the king of Israel. Solomon became part of the messianic line. You know, Bathsheba became the prominent woman in David's life. David was a man who had many wives. But once that happened, one woman became prominent in his life, Bathsheba. Even at the end of his life, as he's on his deathbed, it's deathbed, his deathbed, it's Bathsheba who has access to David to help transition the kingdom into the hands of their son Solomon. I mean, she played a huge role. You can't underestimate the role Bathsheba played in the transition of power to the son. And David's life, I mean, when you consider David's life, it's a powerful example of someone who, who placed himself in a situation that was, I don't know, what do you say, less than God's ideal, sinful. He totally blew it, messed up bad, destroyed a marriage by adultery. He, he became a murderer. His own child died because of his actions. And God disciplined him. God chastised him. And when God had brought punishment for David's sin, and David made adjustments and corrections to his life, and he dealt with his heart, God began to pour his grace into David's life. You know, I I don't believe that a person who's had a failure in a previous marriage 
lives in a perpetual situation of adultery because they remarried. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Divorce has repercussions. We know that. We've all observed that or we've experienced that. But divorce is not the unpardonable sin. As God disciplines and, and chastises and we, we make adjustments and we make corrections, God pours grace into our lives, even when we've messed up our past. Aren't you thankful for that? Even our marital past. He pours in his grace. I mean, David and Bathsheba are case in point. How can you see it as anything but otherwise? When things were made right before God, Solomon was blessed and God redeemed and God poured his grace in and he saw that his name was glorified. See, that's our God. That's Jesus who we serve, who redeems our mistakes. He, he's a God of creation, but I like to think this about God. He's not just a creator. He's a recreator. He takes broken things and he puts them in order. You know, I think we live in a time when people take divorce way too lightly. In, in the church, you know, some take divorce too lightly. They, they fail to see God's ideal and God's design and God's pattern and his holiness in what marriage is. But we also live in a time when, you know, the church doesn't know how to deal with divorced people in lots of ways. Lots of you know that. You've experienced that in your life. It's like they judge and condemn couples that have admittedly failed, but who have sought the Lord and are starting a new life together. You know, I think people need grace, man. They need grace. They, they need a chance to, to restart. And sometimes it's hard to navigate these things, but there needs to be a balance. A very high view of marriage and grace for one another in the midst of holding on to the ideals of marriage. Don't you think? Isn't that the gospel? And the disciples recognized that this was the ideal Jesus was speaking about. And their next question wasn't, wasn't a complaint, I would say. It was a recognition of God's ideal. It's like, wow, man, that standard is high. Isn't that always the scripture? Perfection. The standard's high. And guess what? We all fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes that happens in marriage. We fall short of the glory of God. That's why we got Jesus. And so the disciples asked this, asked this question as Jesus was speaking, not a complaint, but a recognition of God's ideal. And they essentially asked this. If this is God's ideal, man, if like that's the standard, if like we have to live up to this holy institution of perfection, Maybe it's better that we just live lives of celibacy than try to meet the true ideal. Marriage is tricky. It's tough. Let's opt out on marriage. And their question reveals that they were, I would say, understanding the value of what Jesus was, that Jesus was playing and so uh, placing on marriage. And so verse 10 says this. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus says, some men are born eunuchs. They remained single because they were born that way. There wasn't a desire wasn't going to physically happen, whatever it is. He said others were made eunuchs by the hands of men. That was a common practice in the days in which they lived. You know, a common place for in antiquity to make men eunuchs who were maybe placed as guards over the king's harem. We understand why. Uh, the king was protecting his own interests. And so again, you know, whether born that way or made that way at the hands of men, these are individuals who essentially, Jesus says, there's some that are left with no choice, he says. But there are others who make themselves eunuchs. He's saying they, they choose the life of celibacy. They choose a single life uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Wait, I have a word for the Lord for someone here. 
No, just kidding. <laughs> I see a picture of someone. Right now, you're going to live a life of celibacy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the Apostle Paul is an example of a man, right? He chose a celibate life to serve the purposes of God to his generation. On the other hand, there's a guy in the New Testament in the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Philip, who had a wife, who had four daughters, who loved Jesus. The scripture says that his daughters, Philip obviously raised them well, they became prophetesses. The Lord used them and they had a, an important role in the church. And so there's, there's some on either side and those that choose for the sake of the kingdom, they're given that gift. And there's others who know the gift is they get to live the married life, which is a blessing. Amen. To each his own, as God has given grace. That's what Jesus is saying here. No, you don't have to avoid marriage just because it's such a high standard. No, to each his own, as God has given grace. If God has graced you to live a single life, then rejoice in that freedom and serve the kingdom of God with fervor. Serve the kingdom of God. And if God's grace for you is to be married, then be married. Love your wife. Respect your husband. You know, raise your children to know the Lord. Raise godly kids. And so, you know, as I think about this, this text, I would say this, you know, if, you're, if your past has included failure in marriage, maybe it's included adultery, hopefully not murder, but, you know, don't know who's sitting here this morning. Uh, know this. God has a redemptive plan that he wants to work for you. God wants to pour his grace into the situation that you're in right now. He, he wants to change your heart. He wants to work his story of redemption. And if your heart is surrendered to him, if you turn and surrender your life to him, then his word says he has hope for you. He has a future for you. He is good for you. You know, here's my counsel that I always generally give people is this. Look at the place where God has you is where he has you. Whatever the past is, the past is. We take that to the cross. And from the cross, we look forward to the future. We bury the past with the blood of Jesus we learn and we ask God to pour his grace into the situation that we're in today. Today. Look at man. You know, I always want to encourage you. In this church, we don't care about your past. We care that you met Jesus. Then we look forward. We look forward from there. And in this passage, you know, Jesus teaches us about the absolute sacredness and sanctity of marriage the marriage relationship. He, he speaks and everything Jesus says is to safeguard marriage. I always do that in counseling. I'm like, I try not to give people ever an out. Man, I want to safeguard marriage always because it's God's design and pattern. We want to move from, away from attempts to break it down or undervalue it. And so this morning, as we consider this text, I, I, I want to say to you, God has grace for you today. You'll come to Jesus. You surrender your heart to Jesus. You take the hardness of your heart and say, Jesus, make my heart soft. And this morning, maybe that needs to happen for husbands and wives here. You know, maybe even as we just, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Maybe as um, we worship this morning, Maybe your act of worship is this, to say, Jesus, I need you to touch my heart in regards to my spouse. There are things going on in here that I can't, that law and rules is not going to change. Moses, if we go Moses, we're going down the path of divorce. But if we go Jesus, you can change my heart, Jesus. Change my heart towards my spouse. And so uh, this morning, may, may God give you grace right in the place where he has you. May he give you a heart for him. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray.
Jesus, we just thank you for the gift of marriage, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you, God, that in the midst of our mistakes, our failures, our wrongdoing, Lord, you, you are there holding out hands of mercy and grace. And Father, this morning, we just turn towards you. We turn towards your son, Jesus. Jesus, we just say uh, from, from the inner part of us, Lord, this, this life is meant to be your home, so come and make it your home. Come and dwell in me. Lord Jesus, I just uh, bow the knee of my life to you this morning. I ask Jesus for each one of us here that you would just soften our hearts in our marriages, Lord. God, I pray for every person here that you'd preserve that relationship that they're in, Lord. God, that if there's sin, that you would expose it. There's sin, Lord, that it would be dealt with. But God, that for the glory of your name, you'd, you'd preserve. And Lord, I thank you that you love marriage. It's your design. And God, we just repent. Before you this morning, we repent of wrong thoughts. We repent of that, Lord. Correct our thinking. Bring us in line with the word of God. Lord, if there is any here this morning that is uh, in a place where there is immorality happening in their marriage, Lord, I pray that they would uh, confess it before you and they'd, that they'd make it known that they'd not live in secrecy. And then, Lord, we just pray before, maybe before that even happens, God, that you would just weave your grace into that, Lord. Somehow, God, we ask for your mercy that you would lead those, that, that person maybe to repentance, Lord. And so, God, uh, we thank you for marriage. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you hold up an ideal and you ask us to live to it. And yet, God, you're so gracious when we blow it. God, where would we be without your grace? And so, Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, give us soft hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.